0: Because my wife is going to watch this, I I want to do the proper things and score some high marks with her. So I bring wonderful greetings from my wife, Shola. Um, On a more serious note, she's a a gift uh, to me that I really appreciate. Um, I am honored to be here. I I have tremendous respect and regard for the leadership of this movement, Um, John and Ellie, um, who did the pioneering work and then handed over to um, John and Debbie. And I just want to thank you for this opportunity. I don't take it for granted at all. Um, I was asked to speak from my heart, um, and at this point in time, there's probably only one thing that I have to talk about um, everywhere I go over the last few months. It's, it's what God has laid on my heart, and I'm going to share uh, from my heart um, some variation of, of what God has la- laid on my heart. But uh, before I do, is it okay if I pray especially for myself. Um, After listening to those testimonies that were shared, um, Kostyad Vineyard and the rest rest of the testimonies, I'm so humbled. I'm thinking, what do you have to say to them? They seem to have got it all right. So now I need prayers. (laughs) And so Heavenly Father, help me. And um, speak through me. Take absolute control. You must have a purpose for me being here and I'm asking that as I yield myself to you, you will accomplish your plans and your purposes. Thank you for this wonderful church movement. Thank you for the awesome work that they're doing up and down the breadth of this nation. Thank you for the leadership that they have. And thank you for the next stage that you're taking them to, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I I I want to talk for the time that I have about what I have themed the Elijah Church. As I was driving down from London, a a two-and-a-half-hour drive, um, somewhere along that journey, the Lord spoke to my heart about this movement, this uh, group of churches. And God has made very clear to me that there's going to be one last move of God, certainly one, um, and I believe it's going to be in my lifetime and your lifetime, and that he's raising an army in this nation. And... As I go around, I I walk into places and I feel God say in my heart, this is part of the army. As I was driving down here, the Lord spoke very clearly to me and said, where you're going, the the churches you're going to uh, meet with tonight, that's a significant part of the army. But then I want to say that that comes with a lot of responsibility. And I'm hoping that by the end of tonight, in some way I would have challenged you to take on even more than you're doing, the responsibility for the assignment that God has for this church movement. Round about 930 BC, towards the end of Solomon's reign, the nation of Israel entered into spiritual decline. Solomon turned away from God, was lured away by his many wives and concubines, a lot of whom came from other nations and had gods that were not Jehovah. Using the massive resources God had given him, he started to build temples to worship these other gods um, of his wives and his concubines. That led the nation into a slide into spiritual decay. Things got worse when his son, Rehoboam, took over. Young and unwise, he precipitated the split of the kingdom. And as the the, the scholars know, uh, Jeroboam, who, who had been a servant in Solomon's kingdom, takes 10 of the tribes and that forms the southern kingdom of Judah. And Solomon's son stays with two of the tribes. Jeroboam institutes a rival form of worship to Jehovah at the capital Samaria, uh, the religion of the two golden calves. One at Bethel, one at Dan. His son, Solomon's son, Rehoboam's reign becomes a complete disaster. The nation slides deeper into perversion, deeper into immorality, deeper into idolatry. And a succession of kings, with one or two exceptions, a succession of kings compete to outdo each other in the evil that is perpetrated in the land. Finally, the nation arrives at the reign of Ahab. Now, one Phrase in the Bible sums up Ahab's reign. In 1 Kings, the 16th chapter and the 13th verse, the Bible says, Now, Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Now, things were bad before Ahab took over, but Ahab takes it to a whole new level. And just when you thought it couldn't get worse, he meets a young lady called Jezebel and marries her and she has a clear a- agenda. She's been schooled um, as a daughter of a high priest of, of Baal and she marries him with a very clear agenda. The agenda is the complete eradication of the worship of Jehovah in the nation of Israel. She goes about this her assignment with zeal and passion, drives all the prophets of God into hiding Those who were not killed literally had to hide in caves. Things are so bad that the only way I can describe it is how the prophet Isaiah describes the nation of Israel in Isaiah the 60th chapter verses one to three where he talks about a deep darkness upon the people, darkness covering the earth. And that was the state of the nation of Israel. But then God has a response. And in 1 Kings 17, we see the response of God. The response of God is in the entrance into this situation of a man called Elijah. He comes down from the hills of Gilead. He walks into the palace of Ahab and confronts Ahab Really confronting the ruling deities in the land. He declares that there shall not be dew nor rain for three and a half years except at his word. There's something about this man, Elijah, that the Bible points to over and over again. We find out that before Jesus comes, an Elijah comes. He comes with a spirit of restoration on him. Jesus describes it like this. In Luke's gospel, the the first chapter and the 17th verse. He says, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wise, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That tells me that there's something about that spirit of Elijah that makes ready a people pre- prepared for the Lord. It would seem quite clear to me that the spirit of Elijah is a precursor to any move of God. It was in the old, in the old, in the old times. It was before Jesus came, and I know it's going to be before we get one last revival in this land. What is that spirit of Elijah? It's a spirit of faith. A spirit that dares to believe God for the impossible. A spirit that against all odds, against all reports that stand against what God has said, believes that God will do what he says he will do. Is the spirit that led the prophet in that encounter on Mount Carmel to stand against 950 prophets of Baal, of Baal, and Ashtaroth. He either knew something and believed something God had said, or he was suicidal. Because if God did not come through, he was finished. It's a spirit of prayer, and I'll end talking about his prayer life. A spirit that believes that if you petition the heavens, God will respond. It's It's a spirit that's zealous for God, passionate for God, to use his phrase, jealous for God. It's a spirit of power. A spirit that believes that there is a God in heaven who rules in the affairs of men. A spirit that believes that the children of God can call, the power, call for the power of God to be demonstrated in the world today. It's a spirit that's committed to radical holiness. In a, in a culture that is going against everything that the kingdom stands for, the spirit of Elijah says we will be radical in our holiness and our commitment to God. It's a spirit that comes when a nation descends into spiritual decay, into immorality, idolatry, in some cases, apostasy. When we look at our nation today, if we read and believe what we hear, these are challenging times. The laws are being rapidly changed, immorality is being enthroned. Secular humanism is forcing the worship of God out of the public sphere. If you ask the politicians now, it's dangerous to be identified as a Christian for your political career. In a sense, it's probably as bad as it was for the nation of Israel. The church is mocked. The church is ridiculed. And like I said to our leaders, we mustn't get carried away by what happens in our own colonies. We must step out there and we will find it really is a different and a difficult world out there. A nation that gave us John Wesley is now referred to as post-Christian. A nation that gave us William Booth. At a stage in this nation, more than 50% of the children in this nation on a Sunday would be in Sunday school. Now I'm not sure we will get 2% or 3% in Sunday school. A nation that gave us the King James Bible, authorized by a king of the nation, is a nation where... In certain public places, we can't even read the Bible. A nation that took the gospel to the far-flung parts of the world, that lost sons and daughters, just simply so that the good news could be preached. And maybe I wouldn't even be saved. In fact, I certainly wouldn't be saved if missionaries from this nation hadn't come to my country to preach the gospel for the love of Christ. But we look around now, we see a nation where, despite the efforts of Vineyard and the Redeemed Christian Church of God, churches are closing down more than they're opening up, more than they're opening. We see a nation where the statistics tell us that if it continues at this rate, In another 30, 40 years, one or two of the larger denominations would have closed down and Christianity would have become the second religion in the nation, a nation where public figures can't publicly declare their faith for fear of being ridiculed, a nation where the educational curriculum is being changed to teach our children things that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God and things that frankly in some cases are simply immoral. How did we get to this state? I think a parable sums it up. In Matthew's Gospel, the 13th chapter, from the 24th verse, this is Jesus speaking he says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How, de- how then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. How did we get to this state? I think the answer is very simple. The church fell asleep. And while the church slept, while the church played church, while the church sang good songs and we clapped our hands and celebrated ourselves, the enemy was at work sowing tears. The result is what we have woken up to. A nation that bears no resemblance to the nation that, the nation that we read, read about and the nation that brought Christianity to my part of the world. What is God's solution then? I think God's solution is the same as it has always been. When Israel descended into decay, he raised Elijah. As the United Kingdom has is, is sliding into decay, what does he do? He raises an Elijah church. If the church does not do what it should, the hope for this nation is lost. The church is God's solution. I am passionate about the church and passionate about the local church, especially. Because As I study the word, I see that the church is God's solution. We are nothing if we're not a reformatory vehicle. Every every example of the church that I see in the word of God points to reformation. When he refers to us as salt and light, he refers to us as change agents. If we're not bringing about change, we're not fulfilling our purpose. When he talks about building his church and the gates of hell not prevailing against it, it paints a picture, not of a church in retreat, not even of a church that is holding ground, but of a church that is advancing against the gates of hell. For if we don't do what we should, let us not be left in any doubts that the enemy has an agenda for this nation. In the enemy's eyes, this nation is one of the prized possessions. Possibly with the exception of Israel, this nation is the most prized possession as far as the enemy is concerned. The Lord spoke a word to me as he challenged me to get out of complacency. It's taken out of Amos, the sixth chapter, a warning to the nation of Israel. Amos, the sixth chapter from verse one. Woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who cause the seat of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flocks and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments and invent for ourselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint ourselves with the best ointments, but who are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph." If we're not grieved for the affliction of Joseph, there's something that's gone wrong. If we don't read these newspapers, listen to the news, and it doesn't grieve our hearts, something has gone drastically wrong. If we don't hear the statistics and it doesn't stop us in our tracks, something, has gone drastically wrong. When Nehemiah heard news about what had happened to his beloved nation, his response in Nehemiah, the first chapter, especially the third and fourth verses are a challenge to us today. It says, when the news was brought to him that the gates were burned and the walls were destroyed, life couldn't continue as normal. The scriptures tell us he sat down, it stopped him in his tracks, it stopped him from continuing as normal. The fact that his beloved nation had become what it had become. But he didn't just stop in his tracks, it drove him to grieving and to mourning for the state of the nation. I'm sure he remembered the stories about the glory days of the nation and couldn't imagine that that nation had become what it had become. But then he didn't just sit down, It didn't just stop him, It didn't just stop his life from moving on as normal. He didn't just mourn and grieve. The Bible says he was driven to fasting and praying, and from that to action. And isn't it interesting, the walls that had remained destroyed for 80 years were built in around about 52 years simply because one man took on the burden of God. The reality, however, however, as I said to our leaders, is that in a natural sense, it actually is already too late. The enemy has gone too far. The laws are enshrined. The policies have been changed. The churches are closing down. The statistics are correct. So in a natural sense, it is actually too late. For where do we start? How do we roll back laws that are so clearly against God's laws? How do we deal with a vicious and openly hostile liberal press? How can we prevent the nation from being overcome by radical Islam? How do we deal with a secularist agenda that is so aggressive in its avowed intention of taking worship out of everything that is public? How do we attract an increasingly skeptical millennial generation? In a natural sense, it it is really too late. But then, thank God we're not depending on the natural. Thank God that what we're asking for is a supernatural intervention. For if we are depending on the natural, we should close up, we should shut down and just wait for the inevitable. But then we are not depending on the natural. And that's what gives me hope. I have also read about it happening before. Let's not forget the early church was in a worse state than we are. And they had a supernatural move of God that turned the whole of the world right side up. And so, one might say it's too late in one sense, but if we're, if we're waiting, if we're looking to the supernatural, it certainly is not. Elijah was one man against the whole machinery of the state of Israel run by Jezebel and her husband Ahab. On his own, he had no chance. Against a state-sponsored agenda to remove Jehovah, from the nation, he had no chance. He had no chance on Mount Carmel against 950 prophets of the state that were against him. But because God was on his side, he overcame. What gives me hope is that I am certain that God is on our side. I am absolutely 101% certain that God has an agenda. I actually know of a fact and a truth, and I've started to see the signs that God is putting together a strategy that will turn this nation back to Him. In September, the Lord led me to start a fast. My wife and I had just come back from Ghana And as we got in, as we flew into the nation, as the plane was circling to land, I felt the Lord minister to me and say, I want you to embark on a fast. I don't like fasting. (laughs) I actually like my food. (laughs) I am a foodie. I like nice restaurants. I cook very well and I enjoy cooking, I like my food. But someone said to me when I said that, but you fast a lot. I said, it's a necessity, and I have come to understand that you have to pay a certain price for certain things, but I don't like fasting. But it was a very interesting fast because Shola said to me, "Okay, I'll 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 join you. I'll I'll support you in this fast. I'll I'll stand with you. How long are you fasting for?" I said to her, "This is the crazy thing. The Lord said fast, but He hasn't told me when I will stop fasting. It's a true story. I started fasting in September. I stopped the fast on the 23rd of December." Somewhere in the middle of that fast, I've never done that before, incidentally, so don't think, you know, wow, he fasts like that. No, 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 it doesn't. I don't like fasting. (laughs) I don't like it. (laughs) But I have no choice. Somewhere in the middle of the fast, I was teaching a series in church called God Answers Prayers that totally changed my life. It was very interesting, I, I prepared the teaching, but it changed my life. It changed my life because it took me to a new understanding of prayer. And someone might say, but you, you talk about prayer a lot. Yeah, before then, I, I don't know what I was talking about because, because now I got to a new understanding of prayer. And on a particular day um, as in that series, and I to I want to end on this note as I go into this part of what I want to say. On a particular day in that series, I'd finished preaching, and I was praying for the church. And a prophetic unction came upon me like has never come upon me in my life. I'm not a prophet. I'm very clear as to what I am. I'm, I'm, I'm not an evangelist, neither am I a teacher as you've figured out already. I'm a pastor at heart, I'm a shepherd, I just love people, I just love the church. I have come to accept some sort of reluctantly, some sort of apostolic expression to the ministry that I, where I find myself, reluctantly, because I just love being a pastor. But now and again, a prophetic unction will come. In the same way that any other unction for any other part of the fivefold ministry can come when God wants to fulfill an assignment. And as I stood there praying, I started choking up and then I started crying. And I started to then speak a word, which initially I thought was to the church. I've since found out that it is not a word to Jesus' house, it's really a word for the body of Christ in this nation. With a lot of humility I say that, because I don't think I have any right to speak to it, the body of Christ. And basically what I was saying in a nutshell was that this nation, the church was entering a seventh season and that the servant had gone six times But this seventh time, the servant was coming back with news that was different. If you turn your Bibles, and I'll end on this note, in this part of this thing, to 1 Kings or 1 Kings 18 from verse 41, then Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Camel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So his servant went up and looked and said, there is nothing, and seven times he said, go again. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This scripture has literally consumed my life in the last three or four months. Elijah had finished the battle on Mount Camel. He'd got victory on Mount Camel. And then he gives an instruction to Ahab. He says, go and eat and drink, for there is the sound of the abundance of rain. And so when Ahab goes to eat and drink, Elijah climbs to the top of Camel and bows down on the ground and puts his face between his knees. And says to his servant, go and look toward the sea, expectant. The servant goes and seven times, six times, the servant comes back and says there is nothing. The seventh time he comes back and there's a cloud. I started by saying that God is really out of his church, raising up an Elijah church. A church that has refused to bow its knees to the pressure of the prevailing culture. A church that has held fast to God against the odds. A church that has stayed true to the Word of God. And I didn't come to flatter, but the Vineyard Movement is certainly one of those churches. And we find ourselves now at this point. He says to Ahab, go and eat and drink. For some, life will continue like normal. There'll be the eating and the drinking and the getting on with life. But the Elijah church understands the signs of the times and knows that for this season, God is calling us, to climb up to our camels, to get away from the things at the foot of the mountain that distract, to turn our focus, our attention to God in heaven and what he would do for the nation at this time. To each one of us, God is saying, we need to move away from the base of the mountain We need to climb to the top of Camel. And there isn't time for me to talk in detail about what it takes to climb to the top of Mount Camel. I'm I'm sure you know for Elijah, it wasn't an easy climb. In the same way that for those that God is going to use, the separation from the mundane, the separation from the day to day, the separation from the things that distract, the separation from the things that are good but not necessarily God in the sense of the times, might not be easy. But then he climbs to the top of Camel in obedience. And then he bows down on the ground and puts his face between his knees. There's nothing that depicts the posture of birthing more clearly than what he did. He kneels down and buries his face between his knees. It's obvious that he is in intercession. He, wa- he needs to birth something. And the Elijah church, God is calling to that place of intercession, that place of birthing his plans and purposes for this nation. Don't forget he had said to Ahab, I have heard the sound of the abundance of rain. He hadn't seen anything. There were no natural signs, and there, ha- there are no natural signs now. In fact, on the contrary, all the signs are saying the opposite. But I am sure someone can confirm here, as I know I have heard, that we have heard the sound of the abundance of rain. That there is something that we've picked up spiritually that tells us that something is changing. That God is on the move. There's something that we know spiritually that gives us the boldness to declare it. That this nation is going to experience a revival and very soon. There's something that we've picked up spiritually. It has nothing to do with the natural. In much the same way that if anyone had met Elijah and he said, I have heard the sound of the abundance of rain, they would have said to him, You've lost your mind, there's famine all around. There hasn't been rain for three and a half years. So when I say this in places, people say, but what about the statistics? I say to them, I have heard a sound. They say, what about the declining church attendance? I say, I have heard a sound. They say, what about the cathedrals that are becoming pubs? I say, I've heard a sound. They say, what about about the fact that millennials are leaving the church? I say, I've heard a sound. The natural might be saying something loudly, but the sound I have heard is louder than what the natural is saying. And I am sure there's someone here who has heard a sound. And because he'd heard that sound, he climbs up and bows down on the ground, puts his face between his knees. A friend of mine who has no relationship with this country, an apostle, and one of the finest was told by God, you need to go to those people and help them birth this season, this Elijah season. So he, he sends me a, a message and says, why what am I hearing in the spirit about this Elijah season? And he comes and spends seven days with us just praying, birthing this season. And one of the things he said that I found instructive was he said to me, He said to us, when you're in that birthing position with your face between your knees, it's a very interesting posture because your eyes are not seeing anything but whatever is between your knees. It means that we don't look with our natural eyes. Our focus is on God. If your face is between your knees, your ears are not listening to all the stuff that is around because your face is between your knees. And in that birthing position, he says to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. He actually expected that the servant would come back and tell him that there was a sign that what he was praying for was coming. But the servant comes back with a message that you and I have heard over and over over the years, there is nothing. And there is nothing can be the most demoralizing message you can hear, there is nothing makes a person weary. When a minister is in a place and he's working hard, serving God, loving God, and there, there are no results in the ministry, that is there is nothing. When someone is praying and praying and praying and it looks like the more the person prays, the worse the situation gets, that is is, there is nothing. There is nothing wears down the soul. There is nothing makes you tired. There is nothing can lead to frustration. There is nothing can create a, a feeling of hopelessness. But I came to encourage someone tonight that you might have heard there is nothing once, but we take a leaf from the life of the prophet. When the servant comes and says to him there is nothing, he says to the servant, go back and check again. What was he saying? I heard a sound, there has to be something. The servant goes back and checks the second time and comes back with the same phrase, there is nothing. He does this six times. And the man of God is on his knees holding on. And I came to tell someone here, persevere. It is closer than you think. And the seventh time he sends the servant back, at this point in time, I, I, I can assure you the servant just simply went because he was a servant. Because by this time, he had lost hope himself. But he had no choice. He was a a servant, so he went simply out of obedience. But when he gets there, he raises his eyes and looks to the horizon. I would pay just to see the expression on his face. (laughs) Because he's expecting nothing. But at some distance he sees a cloud that is the size of a man's hand or feast. Why is a cloud important? Because the man of God was praying for rain. The sign that the rain was coming was the was was a cloud. He rushes back to the man of God. I bet you he didn't walk back. He must have run. And he says to the man of God, something has changed. I see, I saw on the horizon a a cloud, the sign of a man's feast, a man's hand. And the man of God says, Go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Now, part of what I came to tell Vineyard is that I've seen that cloud on the horizon of this nation. I see it up and down the nation. People are looking in the wrong places so they're not seeing the cloud. But your leaders will tell you that there is a cloud. When we gather together once a year, they will tell you that that meeting is a cloud. When I sit in a meeting with leaders of the orthodox churches, now I'm Pentecostal, orthodox church l- leaders traditionally think the Pentecostals are rascals. I mean, they, they just don't, I mean, they don't even, they don't. Un- They don't don't even understand us. Now, we think they are a cake and dinosaurs. So, there's no meeting point. So, I'm sitting in a meeting with all the top leaders of the Orthodox Church in this nation, with a whole group of Pentecostal leaders. We're talking about Christ. We're talking about revival. We're talking about the persecuted church. We're praying together. Please let no one tell me that I haven't seen a cloud. I have seen a cloud. (laughs) We have 850 odd churches spread across the nation. I visit some of those churches. I get the reports. I hear about prayer meetings being held with the vicar of the Anglican Church, with the priest of the Catholic Church, with the Reverend of the Baptist Church, and they're meeting once a month to pray for their community and their city. Please let no one tell me I haven't seen a cloud. I'm speaking at Vineyard's National Leaders Meeting. Please let no one tell me I haven't seen a cloud. And if there is a cloud, and trust me there is, I can go on and on and on and share loads of stories that will convince you that there is a cloud. That something is changing, it's below the radar, but it is changing in this nation. I'm praying with the Archbishop of Canterbury. My wife and I are praying with him and his wife in the crypt, and I'm thinking, this is crazy. (laughs) Don't tell me I haven't seen a cloud. We're sitting down and we're talking about the strategies for thy kingdom come. And I'm thinking, don't tell me I haven't seen a cloud. But when he sees the cloud, he knows that that's just half the story. For that cloud on the horizon needs to come over the nation. It needs to be loaded, as they say, and then it needs to bust, break, break up and cause rain to fall on the nation. So what does he do? He says, go and tell Ahab he can eat and drink, but he stays in that position of birthing. There is one thing I am certain is going to to trigger the tipping point, and that is prayer. There is one thing I know that is going to birth the supernatural, and that is prayer. We have done well in a lot of areas, and we must commend ourselves, but the Lord is waiting for the Elijah church to catch the spirit of prayer that Elijah had. And I came here on a prophetic assignment, not being a prophet. And what is my assignment? I came to challenge the Vineyard Church, the churches that are part of this movement. God is depending on you. Ezekiel 22, verse 30. God says, I sought for a man who would stand in the gap and make up the hedge, bridge the gap, so that I didn't destroy the nation because the nation's sins had reached the point of being destroyed, of bringing destruction on the nation. He says, but I found none. I hear that same call I'm searching for those who will stand in the gap in prayer, who will pay the price in prayer, who will understand that the kind of prayer that is required to birth what you and I desire, it can't be prayer like normal. It is prayer that is painful. It is prayer that perseveres. A birth in prayer is not a normal type of praying. It is someone literally holding on to the horns of the altar of prayer and saying I will not let go until you do what you have said you would do. It is someone giving God no rest until he brings to pass his plans and purposes. It is someone petitioning the heavens until the heavens like the parable that Jesus tells us about the widow, until the heavens are literally tired, if they get tired of hearing a person's voice. It's a commitment to a level of prayer that will birth here on earth, in this nation, what God has planned for this nation. And God is searching the nation, looking for those who will commit themselves to that level of prayer. I am also convinced that it has to also be a commitment to fasting. Because if Jesus says this one couldn't happen without prayer and fasting, trust me, some of what we want to happen in this nation, we're contending with what I call ancient devils. Prayer and fasting has to move them. We're dealing with things that are deeply entrenched in this nation. We're fighting a well-organized and well-oiled machinery of evil. If Paul calls them powers, trust me, they have some powers. And it's not going to come except there's a group of people who are ready to commit themselves to that place of prayer and stay there until God brings to pass what he says he will do concerning this nation. And so tonight, I just wanted to ask... Is there anyone here who's willing to stand in that gap? And you know the beauty about this is that you don't have to have done it before because you see it's not by power, by might, it's by his spirit. It's a willing heart that he's looking for. Is there anyone who's saying, Lord, if you're looking for intercessors, I'm willing to be an intercessor? Is there anyone who's saying I'm willing to wake up in the early hours of the morning, sleep late at night? just to pray for this nation? Is there anyone who's saying, I'm willing to sacrifice a weekend, willing to give up some nights and have a vigil where I'm praying all night for this nation? Is there anyone here who's willing to say, it it becomes the priority of my life? I have no other life that I live. Everybody knows that. This is the life I live. Revival in this nation is the reason for my being. I have nothing else that is more important to me. And when something takes over your life like that, it becomes, it becomes your, your main prayer point. Is there anyone here who's willing to say, if God is raising an army, then I want to be part of that army that will fall to the ground, bow my head, bow my head and place it between my, my knees and petition the heavens until God brings to pass his plan for this nation. We're asking for the supernatural. We have to trigger the supernatural. If we continue doing what we have done, what we've done in the past, then we should expect what we've received in the past. And since we haven't received the supernatural yet, we must raise the stakes. Is there anyone here who is saying, God, give me the grace to stand in that place of prayer. Give me your burden, place it on my heart so that my life doesn't remain the same after this conference. Stop me in my tracks. Let me see what, how you see this nation. Let my heart feel your pain at what has happened to a nation that was so instrumental to taking your gospel around the world. Is there anyone who's saying, God, if you can use anyone, you can use me. I hear a clarion call from heaven. Who will go for us? Is there anyone here who's saying, Lord, I'll go for you. Let's bow our heads. And maybe a minute of reflection. And it might not be everybody. I don't actually think it is everybody. But then there might be a few people here who something resonated with what they have heard. And they're saying, God, you know what? Maybe I was designed for such a time as this. Maybe you can use someone like me in that place of prayer. That place of intense, persevering, continuous prayer to cause a revival to come. Maybe if you're raising an army of intercessors up and down this nation, maybe I'm, God, can, can I, can you use someone like me? If you're that person, I would love to pray with you and I'd, I'd love to, to ask John and Debbie to come up and join me. Can I ask you, to, as we just reflect for a minute or two on what we have heard, if you would like a, like a garment of prayer, the, the spirit of intercession to seize you, and let me warn that it really will seize you. It might... Ha- reorganize your life beyond recognition, but it will be for God's purposes. Because this spirit of intercession will wake you up at odd hours of the night to pray. I know, because that's what has happened to me. A car drive will not be normal anymore. I rarely drive now without praying. Just the way my life has become. I'm driving and I'm praying. Every opportunity to pray. If you're that person, I'd love to pray with you. If you can just come forward so we can pray with you. Come, come from wherever you are. Come, come, come. It's an army that God is raising of those who who are saying, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will.